Welcome back to Power Hour, the Athletics Tuesday National College Football Podcast and college basketball this time of year, um, hosted by your truly Nicole Auerbach. Um, and I'm thrilled this week to be joined by my good friend and fellow Chicago in. Is that what we call ourselves, Adam? I think that's what you're allowed to call yourself. Chicago yeah, in. Um, Adam Amin, in case you didn't recognize his voice, um, our Good friend who's now at Fox, uh, broadcast basically everything, but probably honestly best known for uh, the hot dog eating contest. I'm sure that's where most of our <laughs> rightfully so our listeners know you from. Um, so we will do what we always do on this podcast, which is chat and break down everything in college sports um, in an hour or less. And we're going to touch a little bit on um, Adam's career too. So we're going to talk a little NFL versus uh, college football too. But um, Adam, first of all, have you survived the frozen tundra that is our city this time of year? There is sun shining today, as you well know, and it's delightful. I think your mood's got to be better, right? My mood is like way better the last five days because the sun actually decided to be out. So I, I talked about uh, talked about this with a couple of my friends. Like we get locked in, especially you and I, and, and and people of our ilk. We have a tendency to get very locked into what we're doing over the course of like two dark months, you know, December, January, and then I look up and I go, "Oh man, it's this is kind of kind of bland." And then yeah. it's finally gotten to the point where I don't feel that way anymore. So that's nice. That is nice, Nicole. It is. It is. Except um, when we come out of that, it's now March again. And honestly, all of those memes that are circulating right now are really hitting hard. Um, Very triggering right now. Yes, it is. Oh, and, and, you know, <laughs> we're basically only a week away from the actual anniversary of sports shutting down, um, yeah. which, you know, is going to bring back a lot of memories. So I think it's it, it's been a year. Um, it's been long and fast at the same time. Um, but, you know, we've adapted and, and I've I definitely curious, um, you know, before we get into some college hoops, just to peel back the curtain of what it's been like to call games in, in such an interesting sports environment. Cause you know, for, from the writing side, um, you know, I haven't really covered live events. Um, some sure. of my, some people I know have some haven't, but it's certainly not the same. You're not, you're doing everything over zoom. So what is it like? I know you've actually been on site and called games. It, I think over the last year in general, and I guess more accurately since the end of July is when I started going back to call games. I was for Major League Baseball, so I, I joined Fox in the middle of all of this. So we transitioned out. I was supposed to do the American Conference Tournament uh, for ESPN right around this time last year, you know, like mid-March, second, third week of March, and that got shut down. So the last thing I ever did for ESPN was – a sports center hit just saying, Hey, this is what's happened in Fort worth, Texas. And then I got on a plane and I went home and I never worked for them again, which is just a, a strange way to close out a nine year career with uh, with a popular network. So uh, a little bit jarring in that sense, but we got back at it after, you know, the hiatus and, and the break and, and while everybody was kind of navigating the early stages of this and got, back to work probably the end of July doing major league baseball. And I, I, I've been working out of a studio for a lot of these games, something that I wasn't used to doing. Uh, I had done plenty of, but not over the, the stretch of about two or three years. So now here we are working games out of a studio. I'm trying to reteach myself, like how to look at baseball from a, you know, what's a three dimensional sport, a three plane sport 
you know, up, down, forward, back, left, right, and trying to teach myself how to process that and then call that while only being able to see it in two dimensions on a, tel- on, on a television monitor. So, you know, you, you can't see everything in every dimension. So I had to relearn that. Uh, we were lucky enough to, you know, be on site for all of our NFL games, but that was a strange experience because more often than not, outside of maybe two or three games we did this year, there were no fans allowed mm. at any of the stadiums we happen to go. Now, you know, your mileage may vary if you've been to different stadiums, but like Cleveland had fans. I think Denver may have had fans late in the year, if I remember correctly. We were doing Tampa Bay Bucks games early in the year when they did not have fans yet in Florida. So even that was a little bit of a jarring experience. You know, eventually fans in Florida were allowed to go to Tampa Bay Bucks games uh, at a limited capacity. College basketball, I don't think I've seen a single fan other than fa- other than like family and friends. You know, we've done a couple of Iowa games as of late. There's some family and friends, but that's what it's limited to. Uh, the NBA is, has been pretty stringent on that, working for the Bulls full time uh, in Chicago, uh, doing games out of a studio, doing games on site with no fans. So it, it's been a wide and varied experience, you know, doing an MLB playoff series on site, but with no fans is a very strange experience as well. So yeah, I, I know it's kind of a long recap of what's gone on the last year, but it, it's kind of strange to now think about it in that sense. It's been a year essentially. And I'm only now just processing that. And I imagine a lot of people are getting to this month and seeing all the memes and looking up and the sun is out and kind of tilting their head like a dog and thinking what is happening now. It's hard to believe that it's been essentially 12 months now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the night that the NBA shut down and then the NCAA tournament got canceled, that, that 24 hour window is kind of when it became real for a lot of people. And I mm-hmm. think that's part of why I'm personally very excited about March Madness. I think that it, um, although it will be different, um, they will have some fans. It's up to 25% capacity at the different rounds. Um, and it, it will feel like something is back that we didn't have in the last year. And I think that that part will, um, will be nice. I mean, I, I just think, you know, getting that back time of the year um, will feel something like normal. And I, I think having some fans there will, will make a big difference because, you know, you've called some college hoops. I, I mean, I feel like this is the sport that most misses the fans. I mean, it, to me, it is the sport that, that needs that magic. And I think, you know, you, you watch that first Duke Carolina game. And if you didn't feel that way already, I think that was the one because you're yeah. looking at Cameron with, with cardboard cutouts and um, it, it's just missing something. And I, I think that, you know, especially for people who watch the NBA too. And so you're watching like different levels of actual skills and, and, you know, kind of the game itself. Um, it, it makes a big difference to have, you know, like the student sections and like these diehard, this fandom that is tied to a place that was really special to you and not just like a professional team. Um, so I, I feel like even up to 25% capacity for March Madness will, will make a difference. I mean, just to have something, there's some energy, some juice. Yeah, I think John and I were talking about it a little bit before we started. I, I get the sense that – actually, you said it very well there, too, Nicole. I think some of what college basketball – what, what makes it special is the buildings themselves. You know, we always yeah. talk about Rupp and, and Fog Allen and obviously Cameron, and, and there are so many great places around the country that, you know, like even going up to Gonzaga or, or playing a game at St. Mary's when it's a West Coast Conference game, like – you miss out on a lot of this stuff. Cincinnati is one of my favorite places to go. I was watching a Cincinnati Memphis game the other day and just kind of 
kind of thrown off by by it a little bit and just thinking, man, this this is one of my favorite places. You know, when they score the first bucket of the game, they toss confetti out of the back of uh, of the student sections, and it's not there anymore. And it's a little bit jarring. I, I think so much of what makes this sport in particular special, and and I know you could say the same thing about college football. But even then, some I don't know why it feels more impactful here. Think, Maybe because the places are smaller. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, you're 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 on top of it. I it's mean, more intimate, like, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and and I think like even the way you're just talking about the places, like they're kind of characters in the sport. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that there's a little bit of that with football, but with basketball, they're right on top of you. Like I always tell this story about the first time I covered a game at Cameron. Um, everyone tells you to wear like crappy clothing because you are going to get paint on yourself because yeah. there isn't an extra row. Like literally the first row starts where the seats for the press row are. So they are on your back the entire time. Yeah. That is like in, in college football. It's not like that. You're, you're literally not on top of the game the same way. And so um, I'm, I'm really excited, you know, for, you know, the eventual return to like full capacity, full crowds. Um, I know there's, there's, there's a hope for that for football season in the fall. Um, certainly an outdoor sport that, that feels very like possible um, and, and very doable. So uh, especially with the vaccine rollout. So I think all of that's going to be great. I, I'm so excited for that energy to come back. Um, but let's talk about some of the teams that you've seen in some empty gyms um, or from <laughs> afar. Um, so, so I know you, you called a Gonzaga game early in the season. Um, I think for, for those who are tuning into college basketball late, this is the time of year where it's very hard to watch Gonzaga because they are winning games by like a minimum of 20 points. Um, it's, it's hard to get a gauge of exactly how good they are or how they'll be once they have to kind of ramp it up to a different level of competition. Um, how good is this team? And like, you know, you, you've called and, and seen Gonzaga teams in the past and kind of we always measure them against each other. So where does this team stack up against some of Mark Few's best teams and like how much do we trust this team heading into March? I think when we get down to a certain level of offensive efficiency, and I know that's been a phrase or, or a stat that that seems to be more and more in vogue now. And, and that's good. That's a good thing. I think it's a better measurement, especially at the collegiate level. Uh, in the NBA, I mean, everybody's kind of playing a similar pace. In terms of college basketball, pacing is so much affected by experience. I, I get the sense that there are a lot of younger teams that don't play with as much pace because they can't. They don't have the ability to. When you're a freshman who doesn't have the ability to play at a certain pace that you know, a sophomore or a junior is, or if you're a bunch of freshmen all trying to figure it out together, you know, the, the pacing can be an issue. Now, your scoring may be up, and that's fine. So let's use, you know, this is why a lot of us use the Ken Palm numbers because it it just gives you a better sense of one team compared to the rest of the teams across the country. And I think Gonzaga consistently has been in the top three, if not number one, most of the year in terms of offensive efficiency, meaning for the the pace and the shots that they take, they score a higher amount of points than the average team would. And when you see Kispert and Timmy, and I think – I would venture to say probably the number one pick in next year's draft, Jalen Suggs, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that has said that. When you have pieces like that, along with the rest of the, the, this group, uh, I saw them against Kansas early in the year, and Kansas may, you know, may not be you know, the number five team in the country or, or a top five team the way they were when we got a chance to see them. Still a really solid year for, for Kansas, and they're a top 25 team, and they've played really good teams, and they've won games that – you know, are difficult to win on their schedules. So 
I feel like it was a very good gauge early in the year to see how efficient they could be. And now seeing what they look like, you know, three months later, you know, I saw them at the end of November. So even a little further beyond that, you, you, that, that hasn't dropped off at all. I still think Suggs is as good of a point guard as we have in college basketball right now. Kispert is consistent. Timmy is, is a matchup problem. Uh, I think they provide problems at just about every position and they do it off the bench as well. I think this is probably one of Mark View's best teams. You know, I don't know if I want to go as far as to say they're as good as the Morrison teams of years past or the team that made the Final Four. I think they are. It's hard to say that in such an odd year, but I feel like they're right up there with the Final Four team and, and with the Morrison teams of years past for Mark View. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those years where, you know, the West Coast Conference tournament being early is a good thing. I mean, I think yeah. anyone who's got that buffer – um, before they need to go to the state of Indiana and put down residency for a month sure. um, is, is probably in a good place. And um, it, it's, it's been an interesting season in the sense that the narrative of the season was set very early, you know, when you were like around the time that Gonzaga played Kansas and we didn't see Gonzaga Baylor. That was supposed to happen. It didn't. Um, we could eventually see it for sure, but the narrative had been for basically up until I would say like a week, two weeks ago, um, it was Gonzaga, Baylor, and everybody else. And I think that in the last two weeks, people finally bought into my alma mater, Michigan, as being sure. a team that is closer to those two than everybody else. Um, you know, you're, you're very familiar with the Big Ten. Um, I don't think anyone argues that it's the best conference in college hoops this year. Right. It's very deep. They're going to send a lot of teams to the tournament. Um, I, I do think there's something to be said for coming out of it. If you're a Michigan, um, I think in Illinois, potentially also coming out of this league into, um, into the tournament, like they will be battle tested. Where do you stand on Michigan? I think there's now some people even saying maybe they are the best team in the country right now because of that. I, I look at gravitational players. I don't think there's many of them in college basketball. And I think it almost feels like, and maybe it's just because we're not as exposed. I'll admit, and I wonder if you feel the same, Nicole, even as people who cover the sport, like this year, because of all the circumstances surrounding it, I imagine some fans feel the same way that they haven't felt as dialed in to the overall scope of college basketball. And maybe yeah. those one and done players that we, talk about consistently or, or not even one and done players. I don't even want to say it that way. Just the gravitational players, the best, you know, 25, 30 players that typically we would be talking about just haven't been topics of conversation because more pressing matters have dominated the college basketball headlines and sports headlines in general. So we don't get to do some of the deep dives or maybe casual fans don't get that information as quickly as they often would this time of year. So I think there's only 20 to 30 college basketball players that you could consider gravitational and Michigan has one of them. Uh, Illinois has one of them. Iowa has one of them. So when you look at those three teams, all of them have a significant opportunity to go deep in the tournament because they have a closer. They have somebody they can go yeah. to between Dickinson at Michigan, Dosumu at Illinois and Garza at Iowa. Uh, I feel like all three of those teams have a go-to guy. They have somebody that they can lean on. I'm watching Wisconsin the other day and, and, Demetra Trice is a phenomenal college player, but is he a gravitational player? He's been a little, he's been struggling a little bit the last handful of games. And you see why Wisconsin's not in the top 10. They're, they're still one of the best teams in the country, and they can obviously win a bunch of games very quickly in succession in a tournament setting. But you don't think of them as a gravitational team because they don't have one of those players. Michigan has one. Dickinson's one of the most 
efficient scores I've seen this year, you know, field goal percentage up around 60, 70% for a bunch of games. He can score from just about anywhere on the floor. And I think he's, I'll, I'll say it this way. When you have a line item number one on your scouting report for an opponent and line item number one is, is a very specific player. And it just says this guy that makes an impact in, in March. And I think this year, especially when, yeah, it'll be 25% capacity, but it will, will it have the same juice in the buildings that it typically does? That's something that college kids will have to react to. 18 to 24-year-old kids are going to have to react to that, a different type of environment with this level of intensity, even if the, the sound or the noise or the visual doesn't match what the intensity of that game should be. So when you have a player like that that can score at any point, especially in these kind of muted circumstances, I think that makes you dangerous this time of year. And I think Michigan, Illinois, Iowa out of the Big Ten, all three of those teams fall into that category. I, I like the phrasing, the idea of a gravitational player, because the, the, it, it, it makes you think, like I'm thinking about how teams collapse on these players. Like yeah. you can think about that even in the sense of like, yes, like as a nation, we're drawn to these guys, but you can picture it in a game too, right? It's it's the guys that you have to consider like double yeah. teaming. It's the guys that you have to help on. Like it, it, I really like that term and I'm going to steal it. This is why you're, you know, a broadcaster and you, you use your words this way. Um, because, because I really like that concept. And I think that um, it's part of the reason. And I think, to your point about maybe for casual fans, maybe they're falling into the sport a little bit later. That's kind of why we're kind of shifting power hour for those listeners who are like, why are you guys talking about hoops? Um, It's going to shift that way. It's kind of going to be like a guide. It's going to be a cheat sheet because everyone wants to do well with their brackets. um, But sometimes it it takes a little to catch up. And I think this year too, and this is, it goes into kind of the Michigan Baylor Gonzaga conversation. Baylor getting hit with a pause and, and COVID issues late in the season and then kind of coming out of it, having their first loss. Like, so I just think it's been really hard to keep track of, of who's playing, who's good, who we trust, and also understanding the differences in coming off of pauses, which I, I feel like college basketball invented the pause. I don't think we use that term in the football season, <laughs> but, um, but this idea that like, you know, it, it's different, right? Michigan coming off a pause that was like a shutdown in their County is very different than Baylor having cases and trying to go through it physically. Right. And then come back. Um, so I think like that's been part of the challenge of this season in addition to not having the fans, um, and just, again, I think year after year of having one and done players um, or guys transfer, it, it's, do you, you know, yes, you know, the guys on your team, but you don't always remember who's on everyone else's team in your league or, um, you know, when you look at the sport nationally. So it's an interesting time, but I'm really glad that we're getting March Madness. Like we obviously know the importance of that event and we saw how financially it, it hurt a lot of places to not have it. So I, I think, I'm feeling optimistic. I, I think it would be very interesting if we get to like the contingency plans of replacement teams. I don't know how you feel right. about this, but I am pretty into how they set that up. Like it's basically for our listeners who don't know, it's the four first four teams out are usually the number one seeds in the NIT. And that they will be that if they are not needed for the NCAA tournament. So basically how I understand it is selection Sunday will happen. The bracket will be set if between when the bracket is set and the games start playing in the first round, a team has COVID issues, can't play. 
one of the four first four out replacement teams gets subbed in at that seed line. Right there. That's the most fascinating part. I mean, I get it because you don't want to reseed the bracket and do, you know, move a bunch of teams, but you could slot somebody in as like, like, okay, but let's say North Carolina, let's let's say North Carolina is the number one overall NIT seed. Yes. So they're the first, first replacement team. Number one. And let's say the seven seed in the Midwest region. Let, I, I don't know. Let's call it, um, let's say Kansas. Let's say, let's say Kansas is like, like a five seed in the Midwest region. And they all of a sudden come down with COVID issues. You're just going to throw North Carolina in there. So they were going to play a 12 seed. Some 12 seed was going to play Kansas. And now they're playing North Carolina, which would probably be closer to a 12 or a 13 seed, probably closer to that level of team. So now that becomes a much more intriguing concept. The chaos theory is a one seed or a two seed goes yes. out. Because, you know, I mean, like, that's just going to be wild and people are going to lose their minds over this. They're absolutely going to be whoever gets to play a team that subs in as like a higher seed. And then also, I I assume and I think this has been spelled out that after the tournament begins, like the NIT is going to start. um, So if those teams aren't used, like it would just be a essentially a forfeit, right? Like a a buy if, if a team needs to go out. So there is potential for a lot of craziness. Like even, you know, we always end up arguing like who has the easier draw, who has the tougher draw. Like this throws a wrench into all of that. But I kind of love the idea. I'm a little surprised as long as like four replacement teams, like the potential to have more than four is still out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I like as someone who roots for chaos at all times, like kind of rooting for Duke to miss the tournament, be in the replacement team pools. And then like and then a one seed, for, for like, like a one replacement. seed. Yes. <laughs> This that is would the be... chaos theory that you invite. You, you, invite. you are you are the of joker course. of this whole of this whole dark night you know, yes, run like, right now. Though I'm the puppet this. master, so I, I think that's going to be really, really fun to watch. Um, and um, you know, as we get in the home stretch, obviously got some conference tournaments, some teams that are trying to play their way in. Duke and Carolina, very bubbly. Carolina yeah. probably in um, at this point. They're kind of like they've got that buffer um, now, especially after that Florida State win to kind of not even be in the last four in Duke very much on the bubble. Um, a lot of ACC teams on the bubble. Um, so it's going to be really interesting down the stretch. Um, and Adam, I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on th- this is now really the college sport you cover um, when you, when you call games, cause you switched, you traded in college football for, for the NFL. Um, I, I'm curious what it's, what your, uh, you know, what, what the differences are when you're, when you're covering college athletes um, versus pro. I mean, one thing I always thought about when I was an intern and um, covering a lot of like high school sports was like, that's a different level, obviously, than college. And so sometimes if, you know, a game ended because someone made a really bad mistake or a ball went through somebody's leg in a baseball game, like you didn't name the person because right. they're high school athletes. Um, are there considerations in your mind or the way that you call games differently when it's college versus pro? I think 100% there is. Uh, I think a lot of it too comes down to how you speak to these athletes when you have a chance to have access to them, you know, as well. I, I think getting college athletes comfortable into a space where, but, and let me also say this, I I imagine this is more of a television philosophy than anything else in terms of calling games. And I, I do think it's network dependent as well. 
depending on how much access you have. Like if you work at a place like an ESPN that has a lot of access to athletes uh, because they're provided the tools to, to, to give you that access, you're probably going to speak differently to a kid that you don't know, you know, that you've seen a couple of times that you've gotten a chance to know. You'll speak to, to them a little bit differently than you would uh, say, you know, college athlete that you're only going to cover one time or that you may not have as much access to. We, I don't want to say tiptoe. We're much more lenient, I guess. In if we're holding, you know, sports to a very high standard, we're much more lenient in how we discuss college athletes because they're not getting paid. Like they're they're not pros, and I can't take a kid to task the way I would Zach Levine, you know, a professional NBA player who gets paid twenty million dollars a year to play basketball. If he makes a mistake. I'm probably going to call it out more readily, or if there's a trend of bad play, we're going to call it out. I would never say anything personal to somebody. Like if somebody's playing poorly, you say that. And as long as you have evidence to back that up you, or, or people can see it, you feel comfortable saying that you, you have to be a little bit more careful on the college side. And that's okay. I am fine with that. And some people may say, well, you're not, no, 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 no. They're college kids. They don't get paid to play this game. And that is one at least exception you have to make in a, you know, in a realm where, frankly, you could treat them a little bit more professionally. You could, in a different you know world where they were getting paid, you may speak about them differently. You may say, well, you know, it's this person's choice at 19 to go to this school and play this sport for this coach in this program, and he's getting paid, you know, an NIL or, or uh, you know, he's got an endorsement deal with Nike, if that were allowed somehow. You may be more critical of the player because – that's something that opens the door. When you get paid to do something, that opens the door for criticism to it. And that's fine. That's, that's, that's the current iteration of the world we live in. And if that changes, I'll change with that. But that's how it goes. So I've always felt either in speaking with athletes before a game, getting information from them, or critically calling what they're doing in, in a lot of cases, a high-stakes game when we're talking about how important these games are to fans and, and the sport itself or to the culture, like we're talking about with March Madness, you're going to be critical of some kids. I, I think you definitely temper that when you're speaking about college players to a certain extent, because again, they're not professionals and, and you have to treat them as amateurs in that sense. Yeah. And even, I mean, like the way some people be like, they're not doing their job. It's like, well, it's not their job. It's not their job. I mean, like, yeah, do they, job. do they have options about like not showing up for practices and training and stuff? No, not really. Um, we all understand like the power dynamic there, but it's, it's not the same. And, and I think that that's something that, um, you know, I think everyone wrestles with and, and sort of, um, you know, I, I think you see it when it comes out, especially in the last year where um, you had players, you know, talking out, speaking out about like institutional racism and, and things like that. Like, you could see that there were people uncomfortable by, you know, the power dynamic shifting, right? Yeah. Because, and, and NIL is coming, right? Like we don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but athletes are going to be able to be compensated for either their likenesses um, individually with endorsements, whatever, or like group licensing, video game, like whatever it might look like. Well, um, let me throw, let me throw, let me ask you something, Nicole, because yeah. I'd be curious what it, what it's like for somebody, not necessarily in your direct position, but somebody similar to yours, or maybe you, you as well, like, is that going to affect how we speak? And like, let's say you have a Trevor Lawrence type player playing college football in, let's call it 10 years, just for the, just for the sake of the time, 10 years from now, 
NIL is intact. You have, you have a lot more carte blanche as a college athlete to at least go out on your own to get an endorsement deal or you have a local, you know, local gig or whatever it is. Let, let's say uh, Lawrence Trevor comes out in 2030 and is playing college football at Clemson. He's the quarterback. And Nike says, this kid was a star in high school. We're going to give him a $500,000 retainer for the next four years. He's only going to be able to wear Nike stuff, blah, blah, blah. Are we going to be more critical of him because of that? Because it sounds like initially these are all going to be really good, like kind of human interest stories. Like this person yeah. was so good at what they do. We used to say they were the number two quarterback coming out of high school. Now we're going to say he's got a half a million dollar endorsement deal from Nike coming out of high school before he got even put on a Clemson uniform. That's a cool human interest story initially. And then it's going to get around to people and people are going to start to kind of materialize this concept in their head and go, this kid got 500 grand and he's playing terrible. He's playing like shit right now. And I'm, yeah. and are we going to, are we going to, is that tenor going to start to shift as well? Not just in how I may call a game, but in terms of how you or, or yeah. your colleagues may write the story. I mean, I think, I think that you see it with, with the coaches salaries, right? Like I think, you know, yeah. when you, that you, invites, you, that invites that, right? Yes. Like Jimbo Fisher has gotten, more criticism or at least like a more critical eye on each of yeah. the seasons at Texas right, A&M right, right. because of how much he's making. So yeah. I, I do think that would happen. And I think um, that's, what's going to be interesting. I like that in this Lawrence um, Trevor situation, we're like 10 years out because I think in the first few years, there's going to be some like recalibrating necessary, right? Like I think so people too, yeah. are, you know, maybe going to offer too much or too little. And then they're going to figure out like, you know, everyone keeps saying, oh, everyone's just going to throw money at the Alabama it's a new players. It's a new, and, it's a new market to figure out, right? Yeah, and, like, you're not going to spend X amount of money on unproven guys every single year. Like, you're going to try to figure it out. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, the kind of the, the price points will be figured out, you know, based on who's who and who's generational type talent or who's not. Um, or I, I assume Lawrence Trevor also probably has great hair and can probably do some endorsement deals sure, for Pantene. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it also depends, right? Cause I think we're also going to see a lot of scenarios where like the really goofy walk on kicker, um, yeah. has a cult following and he can do something that is like totally different and not the star quarterback, um, but still really marketable. Um, you're going to see like those viral gymnasts at UCLA, like they're all going to have incredible Absolutely. opportunities. So I think once the market kind of sets on all of those different types of things, I, I do think that's going to happen because you're, you already see it, right. It kind of creates an expectation. I think, um, with Olympic athletes, cause I've covered Olympic swimming right. since 2012, I think it's definitely different. Like when Katie Ledecky was 15 and gets her first gold medal, that's very different than like covering her now where she's got a bunch of endorsement deals. She's established, right? Like I, I think in, in your example, you're also kind of throwing stuff at people who aren't, aren't established. So it's a little bit different. They'll be a little right, bit younger, right, right. but I think it's similar with, with the, the amateur versus like the, the athletes that have, you know, endorsements um, in, in Olympic sports. Um, and it's, it, it's like, you know, I, I think it does change how you feel about them because it just kind of changes the expectations because people so are too. committing to it. So I think that's going to happen. I think that's okay. Cause I think you're right right now. I don't really, I don't really personally criticize or, or blame kids for transferring very much right now because no. their coaches are moving around freely. They make a lot of money. Um, you know, always advocate for, you know, if your coach leaves after signing day, like, all those kids should, the NLI should be, you know, tossed out the window, let them go, let them go without penalty transfer, you know, and play right away one time, like totally fair. 
Um, I think that that's partially because of the way the power dynamic is right now. I think yeah, in, in a scenario where, you know, they have commitments or they've agreed to certain things, like, I, I think then you are like, okay, well, are they giving up on their team in this situation? Are they doing this? Like part of the reason I don't have problems with opt-outs, right? Like their payday is coming. Yeah. So it's I, all, I mean, it's, it's all kind of this connected. I think. Go, go make your money, Jalen Johnson. Like I'm okay with that. And again, the, but the, you you, you mentioned something about the narrative of it all. Like once Duke lost the other day, like the narrative around Jalen Johnson quieted very quickly, right? Because they had been on a roll without him and it, it was, well, he, he quit on his team and, and they're better without him and this and that. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like let's let's try to figure out the gravitational pull of all of this. Like there's a so, lot of moving parts to this. That one bothered me. The yeah. way that people reacted when he opted out for the rest of the season, that felt like it wasn't proportional to the situation yeah. we're describing. Yeah. It, it felt very disproportionate. I imagine part of it is Duke. Uh, I know some people talked about it, some racial undertones to it, the way it was being spoken about. That's fair. I, I don't know enough about any of the parties involved to be able to say that confidently, but I understand why people might, might feel that way. Uh, and, and I, I think that narrative got a little bit heated very fast. You know, I appreciated what Jay Billis said kind of defending the kid. Cause he's like, they're all like, you have to look at the biggest scope right now of, of all of this. You have to remember that the coaches still get paid a lot of money and still have way more rights than the kids do. And I don't blame any player right now in this very, very current climate that is changing very fast, I think, in the next couple of years. I don't blame any kid trying to figure out their payday going forward because college athletics is in a, is in a rough spot right now. And I know most of it, most of it right now is pandemic related. There were issues before the pandemic, and there are going to be issues that pop up well after it that continue to be discussion points for quite some time, especially on the college football and college basketball side. But I even think of it you know, as, as somebody who covered a lot of women's sports for the, my entire tenure at ESPN, women's Final Four and women's college softball in particular, two sports that boomed in popularity, I think, in the last few years. The women's side for basketball was, you know, I, I was very fortunate to be a part of two Final Fours that were two of the best ever played. And on, on women's college softball, the, the World Series blew up in terms of ratings the last five years that I had a chance to work on it. And I think those athletes, you spoke about the, the incredible – you know, gymnasts that are going viral out of the SEC and UCLA and Utah and, 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 you know, just all over the country, these athletes are insane. They should like, they're going to be talked about in terms of endorsements and money and things of that nature. And nobody's really speaking about that because, oh, well, it's not a major revenue sports. We don't care about it. This is affecting a lot of athletes. And then in the micro that you talked about, I love that the kicker, the walk-on kicker from North Platte, Nebraska, who, you know, has, it comes from a town of 600 people is, uh, you know, has a possibility of getting like a local car deal endorsement and maybe able to, you know, do something on his own to build a little bit of popularity. Somebody like Pat McAfee is a friend of mine, an old partner of mine would have thrived in a situation like this, just having a personality and just being a little bit beyond their years. You have to respect that people are trying to make their, their living in whatever capacity they can. And for a lot of athletes, if you want to make this your narrative, they're still doing this because it's a great opportunity for them, not for Duke, you know, cause they show up to play for Duke. It's not a great opportunity for Washington because they show up to play for Washington. It's their lives. They're trying to make something out of this one to five year period that they have in front of them to try to set up the next five to 10 years beyond that. You have to keep that in mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. And I think that these are, 
these are important when you're talking about these things, when you're talking about these issues um, to remember who's affected, who can benefit. And that shifting a power dynamic, although a lot of people are freaking out about it right now, it's not the worst thing in the world and it will recalibrate. Like we will get used to it. I think, you know, I I just had um, my colleague Jason Jenks on to talk about kind of like the history of amateurism and like the NCAA model and in, in its essence. And he was worried, you know, am I still going to love college sports? I think we will. I think all of the things that we love will be there. And I think there will be people who are uncomfortable with the fact that they are not being paid yet. You know, March Madness is billion dollar enterprise. Like that, that, like those people will come back to it. Um, you know, and those people will be, you know, feeling people are watching it. People are comfortable with it now. They, they shove that aside whatever thoughts they have about college sports gets shoved aside for three weeks in the month of March. Yes. And it is as corporate March madness is as corporate of a, of an event as America has like, don't get that twisted there. This is a corporate event. It has become that over the course of the last 20 to 30 years, two to three decades, it's become that. And slowly but surely everybody's like, all right, whatever, man, I just want to see the games. Right. And at the end of the day, that's what it's about. And that's why, you know, to, to put a bow on, on a little bit of, of this, and you were talking about this earlier, Nicole, it's, it's still something that we want. It's still something that we, we, I don't know if we crave it the way we have in years past. I don't know if I crave it the way I have in years past, but it's something that sticks with me. When I get to this time of year, there's a very specific sense memory that comes along with it for me as a broadcaster and as a fan, you know, growing up watching the NCAA tournament for, most of us, we have a feeling of like that first weekend is so unique in terms of the feel that it provides with upsets and things of that nature. I know it's going to look and feel different this year, but the games are still what draw people in. It's brands and games, and that's college athletics. It's brands and games, and that's all March Madness is about. You, you don't really get to know too many of the players because some of these teams are, are out after one game. You get to know some of the stories of the teams that get to survive – and I was talking with Jason Horowitz the other day. He's the host for March Madness on Westwood One Radio. And he's been doing that for seven, eight years. And I said, it's kind of incumbent on us, not me. I don't do the NCAA tournament on the men's side. Uh, but I, it, it's incumbent on us as broadcasters to try to remind people about the stories about these programs. Like, and, and there's plenty to talk about. I think a lot of it, yes, will be COVID-related. But there's going to be unique, entertaining possibly inspiring stories that do take place this month. And that is one of the hallmarks of this month. And I think as a culture, we still need that or maybe not need, but want that. And I think this time of year when the weather gets better and basketball is starting to wind down, you, you feel it. You feel that something is coming up in these next couple of weeks. My weekends are going to be locked up for a couple of weeks because I know what's, what's coming up these games and, and this event that we've gotten so used to as part of our lexicon you know, essentially owning one month of the year, it's, it's coming. So I, yeah. I, I'm with you on that. I think it will be kind of cathartic probably a heavier word than necessary, but it's the first word that comes to mind. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the best parts about covering it and, and that'll be different too with, with zoom and all that, but sure. it was, it was finding those stories. Um, you know, I actually recently just got an email from um, a player on the Stephen F Austin team that beat West Virginia at the Barclays Center. And I'd written a story about um, he had gone through something very traumatic and um, had recovered fully and had made it back to to playing basketball, made it to the tournament. And 
by the way, Red is chiming in here. He is squeaky. Mm-hmm. His his white paw, <laughs> his white paw toy, which um, is a instead new one. White, I got him. It's instead of white claw, it's white paw. I'm aware. Yes, and I I've got him. It. I got him that, and I also got him a green juice toy, which he doesn't like as much. Which <laughs> that makes feels makes sense. Very actually. on brand. But it was just interesting because this was the story of this player at Stephen F. Austin, who I don't know if he would have had that opportunity to get that story out there nationally, but they pull off this upset and he emailed me and said that it kind of changed his life because people reach out to him about it. And it got him thinking about what he wanted to do and how he could help other people. And it was just really remarkable. He was sending me this email telling me about, you know, he played in Europe, um, all these different things he had gotten to do, how he was doing some outreach with, um, with, with, with youth in his community now. And he just kind of wanted to like check in and say like this article made a difference in his life and it made him reflect on what he had gone through how he'd come out of it how he was stronger and it's like those are the moments that you're not going to get like I, I remember being in the locker room and John Morant and Murray State beats Marquette like yeah there are special things that happen after a win especially if you get two right because you you get a whole week of people getting to know you um yeah. and learning about you I've covered I had one I was on a streak of three years in a row covering a 14 over three upset including Mercer over Duke. That team was so fun. The coach, Bob Hoffman, so folksy. Like there was so many great stories that come out. And that's the stuff that I missed the most, that, that I missed the most last year. Even if we get the Blue Bloods at the end, even if it's, you know, Gonzaga, Baylor, Michigan, whatever the teams we think are the best at the end. Um, it's always really interesting along the way. So we're really excited. It is officially March. This is March, um, as our friend John Rothstein would say. So we'll, we'll leave it there. We're going to have a lot more college hoops in power hour in the next couple of weeks, kind of a cheat sheet to catch you all up. But Adam, this is your first time on power hour. And I've got to tell you, this is how we always end it. It's, it's a last call segment. So it can be something really that you're happy about that you'd be like, kind of really wanting to like cheers to or have one last drink to at a bar um, or something you're you're angry about that you want to rant about so um, the floor is yours for your first last call <laughs> uh, hard for me to be upset right now I feel like uh, I feel like it, you know I think that's that's gonna be my last my kind of last call uh, I I know it's probably not fitting because if we were doing last call at a bar the sun would not be out I, I mean well potentially, I guess it would be depends where you are I, I, yeah figure figure out the chronology of that but like Cheers to the sun. You know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, just kind of the sense memory that you get from this month. You know, the, the, when, when March rolls around, we have a very distinct idea of what it's supposed to be. And I'm sure last year kind of shifted the, the idea of that a little bit. You know, we, we kind of have all these memes and jokes about the month now because of what we experienced a year ago. And I, of course, I understand why we feel that way. I do too. But in terms of just getting through the last... I'd say three months, January, February often does feel like the dog days to begin with uh, every year, even in, in under normal circumstances. And, and again, I, I understand we say this from a very privileged position of being able to do something we enjoy. We get to cover sports and that's something that you love and that's something that I love. And, and we're thankful that we get to do that. But in our little bubbles and, and much like everybody else in their own little bubbles like this, the, the last couple of months, especially are, they feel dark. And when we get to March, it kind of is a nice reset button for people of our ilk who get to do this because the, the, the kind of tone of our day-to-day lives change a little bit. And I, I'm very thankful that we've kind of made it through a very strange two, three month period. And we now get to hit that reset button. The weather's a little brighter. The, you know, the days are a little longer now. And 
that makes me feel better just in general as a person. My mood is better. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people feel the same way. So cheers to the sun, Nicole. That is well, my, my last call today. That was very like um, philosophical too. I, I, I felt uh, like it was. I felt, yeah. I felt a little contemplative this morning. Yeah, no, I, 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 res- I respect it. I like it. Mine is also a little bit big picture and a little sentimental um, because seeing you reminds me of one of my new hobbies that I developed during the pandemic. I decided I wanted to <laughs> find new hobbies. A lot of them had to do with cooking and baking because what else sure. do you do? And Adam, you helped me in my first attempt at a fresh homemade pasta. And it came out so well. I actually did it again for the second I time. Saw, I saw the other day. And it makes such a difference. It is just such a delightful meal. It, make, it makes you feel like you're at a restaurant, you're doing something special, whatever it is. But my last call is a cheers to new hobbies and people trying new things. And even if that's just buying a puzzle, which I know a lot of people have done, <laughs> um, even if it's just like going for a daily walk, whatever it is, like I just, my, my last call is to trying new things because I do feel like we're, we're kind of seeing a light at the end of the tunnel about things returning to normal. And I'm at least going to have a few new skills out of this, um, including making pasta. So cheers to trying different things, buying random appliances for my kitchen and um, friends like so Adam. Many, so many attachments you had to buy for that. So thing. many attachments. Yes, there's literally like four different ones that you need for the pasta. Um, but I, I'm just I'm just grateful that I, you know, kind of stuck with things and said just instead of thinking, oh, I want to I wonder how it is to make pasta. I actually, you know, attempted to do it. So. Um, that's my last call. And, um, I, I hopefully will make it again and not just have these four attachments in my kitchen for the rest of my life. Um, but Adam, thank you so much for joining power hour. This was a blast as always. Um, and as you could tell, red misses you and really would like to squeak and say hello. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I know you owe me some girl scout cookies, so I will make sure to uh, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure to hang out with Red for a little bit before uh, we grab hopefully some Thin Mints or something. Well, I accidentally bought 16 boxes for myself. So <laughs> still, there is still a lot left over. So I will drop them for you. I awesome. appreciate All it. right. Well, that'll do it for Power Hour. He's Adam Amin. I'm Nicole Auerbach. Uh, be sure to check out the Andy Staples and Friends feed the rest of the week for Andy and Ari and whatever antics they're up to. We'll see you next Tuesday. Mm-hmm.